From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Vaugas. When it comes to climate-related disclosures, for example, I think we're far ahead of, of entities like the Financial Stability Board. I think we're ahead of organizations like the, the Basel Committee. I think we're ahead of, uh, of the uh, insurance regulators. So, I mean, we're, we're trying to be on the front foot and not always be responding to things, but trying to help set the standard. That was Paul Andrews. He's the outgoing Secretary General of IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissions. He talks about global coordination of financial market regulation, describes how countries collaborate on solutions to common problems, and dispels perceptions that the rise in nationalism has undercut these efforts. He also shares his views on financial stability, GameStop, SPACs, and financial, and how IOSCO can address priority items in the Biden administration. My co-host for today is UT Law student, Anna Menix. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to chat with, with you and Adam, and I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. And Adam Enix is my UT Law student co-host for today. Adam, welcome. Thank you, Professor. So, Paul, we're really looking forward to this interview today because uh, you were just concluding a five-year tour as head of IOSCO, and it seems like the perfect time to get your reflections role and an importance in, in serving the global financial system. There's a lot of listeners out there who may not know what IOSCO is or what it does. So we're thinking that's where we should start. Can you tell us about IOSCO, what it does and how it came about? Well, let me give you the thumbnail sketch, which um, IOSCO stands for the International Organization of Securities Commissions. And what it does is it, it, it's a standard setting body that brings together about 95% of the regulators that oversee the markets worldwide. So it's the major regulators in Europe, in, U in North America, in South America, Asia, and Africa. And essentially what we do is we set standards for the industry when it comes to say intermediary oversight or market oversight, or try to set standards when it comes to asset management to the extent that we can. And it, it has its origins actually in North America, believe it or not. It started as an organization in Montreal back in 1983 and was sort of a, a combination of securities regulators of the Americas. And that's really where it started. But then in, in, in and around the late 90s, it decided it needed to be much more global because markets, uh, financial markets are global in nature. And when it made that decision, it said it needed to be more centrally located. And that's how we ended up in Madrid. So started in Montreal, ended up in Madrid. And that's where we are today and have been in Madrid since about the year 2000. Or what makes Madrid centrally located? Well, I mean, more centrally located globally, I would say, than, um, than certainly Montreal, because we, we sort of sit in the middle of the world insofar as the North American markets are concerned and the Asian markets. So, so we straddle two trading days when it comes to uh, being in, in the Central European time zone. So you said there are quite a few members. Uh, why do they join? Why is it important for them to be a part of IOSCO? Well, you know, about 85% or thereabouts, let's say 80 to 85% of our members are from growth and emerging markets. And for them, I mean, having a body to look towards for standards while they're ramping up their markets and, and trying to 
get their arms wrapped around these complex uh, instruments that are that are manifesting themselves in in these markets. Uh, it, it's important for growth uh, markets for, from a standards setting and from an, uh, an exchange point of view. For the more advanced markets, it, it's really a chance to interact with your colleagues from around the world to share information about latest developments in oversight, supervision, enforcement, and people join really for, for all of those reasons, whether you're in an advanced market or whether you're in an emerging market, to learn how and, and learning new ways of doing things to oversee financial markets, which is, which is critical given that they're global. What does the Secretary General do? Well, if you think about the, the Secretary General, it's really the equivalent, uh, at least in my mind, of, of being the chief executive officer of a company. And so what you do is you oversee sort of the, the, the team that, that supports the organization and in our case supports the IOSCO board, but certainly supports the organization uh, more generally. So I have responsibility for um, the fiscal management of the organization, for helping to direct the strategy of the organization, help set that strategy with the board, and then carrying out that strategy. And we do that through a small team that's based in Madrid. It's about 32 people that are in the secretariat, but we leverage sort of the membership uh, globally through our committee structure, uh, both from a policy point of view, but also from a regional point of view. And that's, I oversee that, what I would call that vast empire, if, if I could put it that way, on a day-to-day basis in terms of making sure the work is getting done. So I hope that helps just give a thumbnail sketch of, of what I do on a day-to-day basis. That does. And where does your team come from? Well, it's uh, it, it, it's interesting. You know, we have 32 people, more or less, I would say, and uh, we have about 20 different geographical jurisdictions represented among those 32 people. So we have folks from Africa, we have folks from Japan, we have folks from India, from North America, from uh, South America. So we pride ourselves on having a a global operation, and we do look for diversity in uh, geography and in people, gender, et cetera. And so it really makes a robust team. And, and that's why uh, it's great to work with people from all over the world. So Paul, how did you find yourself in the role of Secretary General? You know, it's, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting story. Well, I think it's an interesting story. I mean, your listeners might not, but, but to me, it, it was one of those uh, things that had a series of events not happened before I applied to become secretary general, I never would be in this position. And so I'll tell you a little bit in very brief form. I mean, I started life as a lawyer and practiced law for four years, but quickly realized that working in a law firm was really not for me. And I really wanted to do something more in the regulatory field dealing with uh, interesting issues. And, and securities was an area that I was very, very keen on and wanted to, uh, to learn more about. So I made the decision to, to move and, and work at the Securities and Exchange Commission and learn the business, if I could put it that way, of oversight and supervision. And while I was there, I was asked to head up a small office of international work that was within the Division of Market Regulation, as it was known at the time. Now it's called the Division of Trading and Markets. And so I was working uh, internationally there and, and really enjoyed it, was doing some traveling and dealing with uh, uh, intermediaries and banks and securities regulators around the world. 
And then a friend of mine who was the, uh, the chief of staff of what was then called the NASD, now called FINRA, was leaving. And the chief executive officer and the chair was looking for a replacement. And so my friend called me and said, you know, look, you've got some experience internationally a little bit. You have the regulatory background. Would you be interested in taking this role? And I thought about it and certainly thought it'd be a good opportunity. So I went, talked to the guy, he hired me and and he was very global in his outlook in terms of what he wanted to do at NASD. And I helped establish what was then called NASDAQ Europe. And then from there, went back to uh, uh, NASD, which became FINRA. I headed up the international division for about 17 years, got involved in IOSCO, learned about the organization. And when the position of secretary general opened up, uh, I had a number of colleagues encourage me to uh, apply for it. And so I did. And uh, uh, one thing led to another. And here we sit five years later. Well, you mentioned that your interest grew out of an interest in working on interesting regulatory matters. So what about international finance speak to your attention? Well, I think the fact that it is extremely challenging, to be honest, to work with people in different cultures, with different regulatory regimes, yet trying to solve a very similar regulatory problem. And it was, it was sort of that combination of, I would say, problem solving with cultural differences that really led me to gravitate, I would say, to the international field. And understanding how people enforce their rules, how they came about making their rules, and sort of the, the mechanics of how they went about doing what they did, and comparing it to how we did it in the United States, I learned very quickly that there are many, many ways to do things that establish a, a common goal. And that, that just interested me. And I found working with different cultures in particular, one of the more challenging things, because you have to speak sort of their language, not necessarily the, the verbal language, but the same approach, I would say, philosophically. So that's a, a good, good way to segue to the next question I have in dealing with cultural differences. How does IOSCO establish priorities and accomplish goals? It's not a treaty organization. There's no enforcement authority, as far as I know. How do you get things done? No, you're right. There is, uh, there is no treaty basis to, uh, to IOSCO. It's really a consensus-based, member-driven organization. And as, as unwieldy as it sounds, uh, we have a board uh, made up of 34 members, and they come from the, the world. I mean, they're geographically dispersed, and it's really my job, along with the chair's job of the board, to help lead the board. And what we do on a yearly basis is we, through our committee structure, come up with ideas about where we think IOSCO should be spending its time on a priority basis for, for the coming year. And we make a presentation to the board and, 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 and we justify why we think that these are the top three things we should be, be looking at and focusing our time and attention on. And we have the conversation at the board level and, and, and typically we reach a consensus. I mean, I would say that we may not end up with three. We, we may start out with, uh, say, 10 and then we whittle it down to three or we may start with three and whittle it down to two. So it just sort of depends on the, on the nature. And, and usually we find that uh, we can build consensus and we do have the power to vote around the board if, if we need to. But 
in my five years of uh, being secretary general, I think we've had to institute the vote maybe one time because we do compromise and we do find legitimacy in, 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 that, in that compromise because that gives people greater buy-in. And when they buy into what you're trying to do, they're committed to it and they carry it out. Can you give an example of something that IOSCO has done that wouldn't have otherwise been possible without the organization? Well, I think to, to pick up on, our, on a recent issue, um, we've had a lot of discussion around COVID-19 and around liquidity in the marketplace. And arising from that, I mean, three years ago now, we put in place uh, some recommendations around how firms should manage their liquidity. So liquidity risk management tools. And, you know, I'm not saying we were prescient by any stretch of the imagination, but I will tell you that those liquidity risk management tools actually were universally adopted and applied. I would say uh, not, not universally. I mean, some firms didn't necessarily apply them, but by and large, they were universally adopted and they were used during the COVID-19 crisis. And they, they, they proved to be worthy about setting up gates and suspensions and swing pricing and, and various different things that we looked at and set the standard for three years ago. Now, one of the reasons we did that was because we had the great financial crisis back in 2008 and 2009, and really had to look at some of these uh, issues that arose from that. And so we put in some recommendations in 2012, and then did some additional recommendations in 2017. So that's that to me is an example of, of something that I don't think would have been possible without an organization like IOSCO. I'll give you another example, if it's helpful, and that is around enforcement. You know, markets, I keep saying, are worldwide and, and they don't know borders. And the same is true of frauds and scams and, and, and things that happen today because of the internet. I mean, it's easy for fraudsters to uh, perpetuate their schemes cross-border without any difficulty. One of the great success stories, I would say, of IOSCO that would not have been possible without us is our multilateral memorandum of understanding, which is signed by about 130 countries now, which is an agreement. It's, it's, it's an MOU, so it's not a contract, but it's an understanding that we will exchange information among each other for enforcement purposes to be sure that fraudsters can't move from one country to another and get away with it. And that's been a huge, huge success. And I think that it is something that we need to be touting, I would say, even more than we do because it's proven its worth with, with how countries exchange information to stop the bad guys. And it's been particularly important in a, in a COVID uh, environment where frauds and scams have, I, I would say, increased pretty substantially. So yeah, IOSCO, I think, has really proven its its worth in many areas, but those are just a couple of examples that, that, that I hope help. Could you tell us a bit about getting that memorandum of understanding adopted? We understand there are some European data privacy laws that were a problem with that. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how members adhere to it, what the process was like in terms of getting agreement and you know what the end result has, has been? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. I mean, if you go back to when it first started, the uh, the MOU, the MMOU, we call it, you know, was back in 2003 or something. And, and it was, it, you know, it germinated out of one of the, the policy committees that IOSCO has. We have 10 committees of the board 
uh, eight of which are policy committees. One deals with uh, risks and one deals with analysis. So the, 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 the origins of the agreement came out of the committee and it came up to the board and the board approved it and, and everybody was uh, happy and, and it was working great. And then we had GDPR, the, the, the European General Data Protection Regulation come into effect, which basically called into question the use and the efficacy of the IOSCO and MOU. And this was particularly true of our European members. And we said, whoa, this is going to be a problem because if we don't get ahead of this, then Europe is going to be cut out of using the MMOU. And that's, that's not good because so much business is transacted between non-European countries and European countries. And so we established a very small committee of the board and said, look, we need to go talk to our European uh, colleagues in the data protection area. And we looked at the regulation and we looked at ways that we could satisfy them that our MOU was satisfactory and would protect privacy information. And, and the end result of that was that we, we negotiated what's called an administrative arrangement with the European Data Protection Board, which was sort of a bit of an add-on, I would say, to the MMOU, which doesn't add any real obligations, but it gives assurances that we will adhere to the GDPR. And it was really a negotiation between the regulators from Europe and IOSCO. And I think it, it, it's worked extremely well. And we were in the vanguard of that and the first to sign an administrative arrangement with our European colleagues to be able to continue using the MMOU. And it's gone extremely uh, smoothly, I would say. And that fortunately was, was satisfactory. And then we've had other standard setting bodies come to us and say, how in the world did you do this? And, uh, you know, we made that arrangement public. It's on our website and, you know, for the world to see. And so I'm particularly proud of that because we anticipated the problem, we addressed the problem, and we solved the problem. Can we talk about financial stability? Sure, sure. So my understanding is IOSCO has a seat on the Financial Stability Board in Basel, Switzerland, where most of the members are central bankers. And that body discusses many of the threats in financial systems, particularly those that are outside the banking sector. We now call that non-bank financial intermediation. In the pejorative, it's been called shadow banking. What is IOSCO's role in shaping the views about the risks and concerns in this area? It's, uh, it, it's an evolving one, Scott, I would say. I mean, in the early days, uh, when I first started at IOSCO, you know, we would, we would be outnumbered, you know, by far. Uh, market regulators were, you know, two or three in some of the committees, and the banking and the prudential regulators were many multiples of that. So our reaction was we would sit in the corner and, you know, throw a temper tantrum and say, listen to us, listen to us. We know what we're talking about. And then we realized at some point, you know, that really wasn't working and that wasn't that effective. And so we started to, I think, change the approach in, in a, couple of, uh, a couple of different ways. Number one, we, you know, lobbied, I guess is a good way to put it, that there should be additional market regulatory representation around the table because there is so much happening in capital markets that is outside of the banking system that we need more voices, more diverse voices from emerging markets, from other parts of the world to be able to ensure that we're hearing all viewpoints. So that was one 
thing that we did to be sure that we were, uh, and we were, frankly, we were successful and we, were, we expanded three or four times the number of market regulators that now sit around the table with the banking regulators. That's numbers is not sufficient. You have to bring some substance to the table as well. And so the other thing that we did is we, we established a group within IOSCO at a board level called the Financial Securities Engagement Group, or the FSEG for short is what we call it. And this was a group of market regulators from the US SEC, the CFTC, the FCA, the Japanese JFSA, which focused solely on systemic risk, financial stability issues from a market regulation perspective. And so what we were trying to do is really bring some substance to the discussion, as opposed to saying, you prudential regulators, you central banks, you really don't understand markets. And instead of just saying it, we were coming prepared to demonstrate why the perspectives we were bringing were relevant and important and needed to be heard. And I would say over the course of the last couple of years, there's been a real sea change in the way that the FSB operates and does its business and has included market regulators virtually from the, from the get-go. And it's been, it's been a slow process, but it's been one that I think has been fairly successful because we can't just say we know better. We have to prove that we know better and we have to prove it with as much information and data as we can. And data has become an important part of what we try to do in providing information through our work at the FSB. So it's, uh, it's been multi-pronged, I would say, approach, but one that's, I think, proving more and more successful and proved to be very, very relevant and helpful during COVID, I would say, in particular. So it sounds like most of what IOSCO does with the Financial Stability Board is more educational and less a difference of opinion about what to do about risks. Is that a, a fair statement? Well, not, not entirely. I mean, I do think we, we do play an educational role by all means, but I also think we bring substance to the table. So for example, like margin, a lot of problems, difficulties, or challenges perhaps is a better way to put it with respect to margin during the financial crisis and during COVID. Well, the king of, of margin in, in the non-bank financial sector really is the European Union and the US CFTC, because we're talking about derivatives and the derivatives world. And we were able to contribute in a very, very significant way to the learning and understanding of, of how margin actually impacted liquidity during COVID-19. So it wasn't just educational, but it was also helping to shape what policy thinking is happening around margin when it comes to how the Financial Stability Board is thinking about what they might do as a next step when it comes to, to, to margin. So it's both educational, but also substantive. And I've seen a shift uh, over my time here that it, it is more substantive, particularly when it comes to issues around asset management and margin and credit rating agencies in particular. And so it's, 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 it's I hope, going to continue to evolve to be more of a of an equilibrium. I don't think it'll ever be completely equilibrium, but I think we're getting closer um, because the markets are so interwoven and the banking side is, you know, they, they, they need markets and markets need banks. And so, you know, we have to work together in, in, a, in a cohesive way. Do you think that 
some of the issue or problems at the FSB is that it's easier for a prudential regulator to look at problems outside of banking and therefore to defray some of the criticisms and then look at non-bank financial intermediation as being the problem? Is, does that ever play a role, do you think? Well, it is always easier to, to point the finger elsewhere. I mean, and to see somebody else's flaws before you see your own. I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that that's sort of a natural thing. And I do think that um, in, in, in some respects, you know, banking regulators and prudential regulators have a mission. And their mission is to save the system, you know, should the system get tested in a, in a very, very difficult way. And in some respects, markets are part of that system and they see sort of where all the, where all the possibilities are, where, where things could go wrong without, uh, you know, dare I say, fully understanding that there are built-in mechanisms within markets to help self-correct. And, and, and they don't always understand what those self-correcting mechanisms are and so all they see is the risk part without the, the solution part, if I could sort of say it that way. And so, yes, I think it's, it's easier to look outside of your own house and see problems than, than examine what is in your own house that you might want to think about changing and fixing and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and there's, there's many examples of that that came, became manifest, I would say, during COVID-19. And, you know, we're having those conversations, which is a good thing, I think. We'd like to hear a little bit more about those problems and those conversations. So when COVID-19 began to surface about this time last year, what was IOSCO's role in the response? Well, we, we played a, uh, I would say a multifaceted role. I mean, it was, it was in the early days, I would say, sort of an information sharing role uh, among our members about what was going on. I mean, what was happening? How were markets functioning? Where were the problems? And what were the solutions? So what we, what we did very, very early on is we created a repository that was for IOSCO members to put in sort of problems that they were seeing and solutions or approaches they were taking. So one of the things, for example, just to give you an example, I mean, we were seeing a lot of markets put in short selling bans around the world, particularly in Europe. And we were, at, we were asking our members to, to, to put in, you know, what they were doing and what were these short selling bans? What were the requirements of the short selling ban? Was it, you can only, you know, short three days a week or you couldn't short at all or whatever the case may be and, and, and why they were doing it. And what was useful about, about that kind of information sharing, it was particularly useful for markets that were thinking about putting in a, in a short selling ban, thinking that that was going to stem the tide of uh, liquidity problems, but they could learn the lessons from those that had instituted the bans and what the implications were for those markets. So on the bans, I mean, clearly some jurisdictions like the US had learned some lessons from the global financial crisis and elected not to do it, but some of the Europeans did. What was IOSCO's advice to those jurisdictions? Did, you know, IOSCO say, this is a bad idea, don't do it, and they did it anyway? Or how did those decisions come about? No, what we, what we did is we said, okay, you know, several years ago, we came out with some standards and some recommendations on short selling. And basically, we said, we're not, we're, we're not going to take a position whether you think it's good or whether you think it's bad. That's jurisdiction specific. And we realized there's some political implications and whatnot. 
But what we did say is if you are going to implement a short selling a ban or uh, other, other restrictions when it comes to shorting stocks, look at the IOSCO recommendations and make sure you're in conformity with what those recommendations are. And that's really what we ended up doing because we found that if, if we came out with a strong position one way or the other, we were going to alienate somebody. <laughs> and these were big markets and there were there was a lot going on at the time. And so we didn't want to necessarily get in the in the middle of the of the political quagmire. But that's just an example of one of the things that was that was in the, the repository. So so it was information sharing in the first instance. It was making sure that people understood exactly what was happening in the markets. It was participating in financial stability board meetings in a more fulsome way so that we were able to share the experience of what was happening in the, in the commercial paper market, in the CD market, money market funds, and, and, and how these markets were actually performing because that's really where the market froze was in the short-term funding markets. And so that's where uh, market regulators really, that's the sweet spot for, for what we were doing. And yet it was important for the bankers to also understand what reactions they should take to help unfreeze these markets. And so it was a, it was a lot of information sharing, I would say, in the, uh, in the early days. And, and, and I would say that it led to some, some policy discussions about what we should do. And, and we haven't made any firm decisions yet. I think everybody's in agreement that we, we probably need, and we are, we are looking more closely at money market funds, and do we need to make some policy changes about how these markets operate in times of crisis. Do we and need to make policy changes to money market funds? I think we probably do. You know, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't think the analysis, our analysis is certainly not done. And we're working very closely with the Financial Stability Board on this as well. But I think you will probably see some changes. You've seen the SEC come out with, with a recent uh, paper, consultation paper, on potential reforms to money market funds about what they think uh, need to be done to help these markets be even more resilient than they are. And I think you'll probably see some, some, some reforms. I wouldn't say wholesale changes, but I think you're going to see some tweaks about how these markets uh, operate around the edges. But I, I, I want to withhold judgment because we still are, 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 are looking at it and, and, and fully understanding the data that is coming out of what happened in March and April, particularly of last year. Um, but if I were sort of taking a position today, I would think we're going to see some change. Let's talk about reform more generally and the effect of reform. There was a big push prior to COVID for global regulators to assess what 10 years of post-global financial crisis reform looked like and whether it worked. Was COVID a test of that? How do you think markets performed and do you think reform mostly got it right? Are there any problems in your estimation? Well, I do think COVID was, was a test for what policies were put in place after 2008 and 2009, full stop. So I, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. I would say on, you know, from the, from the market side, the things that we did since the financial crisis, the money market reform recommendations we put in place, the short selling recommendations we put into place, the benchmark regulation uh, or, or principles that we put into place, I would say pretty much withheld the or withstood the test of COVID. I think I would also say if I you know can go outside of my comfort zone a little bit on the banking side, I think there were many of the reforms that were put in place after 2008 and 2009 
were useful. I think the banks withstood the COVID crisis in a much better place than they were back in 2008 and 2009 because of the liquidity buffers, because of the uh, uh, leverage ratio. I mean, they were they were financially in, in a better place and, and could dip into those ratios and, and those capital buffers if asked to. And they were asked to, and some of the banks did. And I think that, you know, having central clearing, I think that really did help make things much more, uh, not, I don't, I don't want to say better, but we came out of it standing versus, you know, coming out of it crawling on our knees. And so I do think that by and large, there was some good things that happened back in 2008, 2009. You know, was it perfect? No, I wouldn't say it was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And are there things that we could do you know, more and better. And I think that's what we're looking at now as to what should we change? You know, should the liquidity ratios be changed? Should the capital buffers be changed? I'm not sure that they will be, but I know one thing that we did, for example, in connection with the Basel committee is we delayed implementation, for example, of initial margin requirements for another year. And that was in direct response to COVID. You know, after the financial crisis, we put in place some requirements when it came to initial margin. We realized COVID was uh, sort of, we hope, a one-off event, and we don't ever want to see that happen again from a financial or a human toll, you know, sort of point of view. But together, we decided, you know what, a year delay of of these uh, requirements is not going to be the end of the world. And so talking about those things and working together through them, you know, I think uh, has been actually a good thing. And so 10 years on, I think we're in a better place. I think we're going to come out of this better. But are there things we can do? I think I think we probably will find some areas that we that we can and should improve. Aside from the issues directly raised by the COVID crisis, are there any remaining global risks that deserve the attention of international regulators? Well, I mean, I'm a firm believer in trying to reduce market fragmentation. I don't think market fragmentation is good from a regulatory point of view. I don't think it's good from an industry point of view, and I don't think it's good from an investor point of view. So we've been doing a a fair amount of work on market fragmentation, and I think that that work will continue uh, into 2021 and probably into 2022. That's clearly an issue that I think we have to come to grips with um, by all means. That's one. I think the other area is, you know, can we find a way to standardize data reporting, particularly of derivative transactions, equity transactions, so that globally we're all operating on the same um, level of of data. And that's become critically important uh, in times, you know, in COVID, uh, but it, it was important before COVID and it's going to be important after COVID. And so whether we could ever reach that that common core, if you will, of a standardized data reporting regime would be great. And I don't know whether we'll we'll ever get there, but I think that's an issue that definitely deserves some attention. And I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to have those discussions uh, uh, globally. But unfortunately, so many things are jurisdiction specific. I'm not sure we'll ever reach the holy grail. But what I think we can do is, is come up with a core set of data that then jurisdictions can add on to, but that core set of data, I hope, would be enough for regulators to do their their day-to-day job, but also contribute to the global conversation uh, as well. 
And that's, I think, something that definitely deserves attention once we get through sort of the short-term COVID issues that we have to continue to deal with. So our next question, we hope that you'll be able to answer a little more liberally now that you are departing IOSCO. <laughs> How do you think the leadership change in the U.S. will affect IOSCO and its priorities, if at all? Well, it, it is a very interesting question. And I will tell you that it, it, it is all person specific. And let me just give you what, what I mean by that. I mean, when the, when the prior administration came in, I will tell you there was a fair amount of trepidation with respect to who might be appointed as head of the financial regulators in the US. So meaning the Fed, the SEC, the CFTC, particularly the CFTC and the SEC who I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I will tell you that we were all, I would say, fairly pleasantly surprised about the quality of the individuals that were appointed by the, by the prior administration. And they were, they contributed to the discussions, they were positive in, in, in thinking about the key issues that we were grappling with. And, and they were, you know, I would say very generally well regarded and, and contributed substantially. I would say the same thing here. I mean, you know, it's it's going to be person specific about who gets nominated and who gets confirmed as the chair of the SEC and who gets confirmed as the chair of the, of, the, of the CFTC that is going to really matter. One of the things that we're spending a great deal of time on right now is around climate and uh, sustainable finance. And we're, we're moving very expeditiously in, in that area. It seems to me that the, the, the new administration in the United States is very attuned with what IOSCO is trying to do. So I do think that there could be some change Depending on the person, it, it's it's difficult to know uh, how that's going to actually shake out. But I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that the new administration will be much more globally focused, not just on climate issues, but I would say more more generally. Well, let's talk about ESG more generally, in addition to climate specifically. Is this something that IOSCO has to start up now, or is it something that you've already been working on? in the background and maybe just wasn't elevated during the last four years? Where is IOSCO on these issues? What are they doing and how can they contribute specifically going forward? Yeah, well, what what, what we have been working on uh, on climate uh, in particular, when when it comes to ES&G, I mean, for the moment now, we've set aside the the S and we've done a lot of work, we think, on, on governance issues over the years. So we've, in some respects, set governance aside, but it's always there. I mean, governance is always always an issue. And and when you think about environmental of the E, you know, the E of ESG, we've decided to focus on climate because that's probably the most pressing issue at the moment, uh, at least as uh, uh, many would agree. And we we think so as well. So so I would say for the past year or 18 months, we have been working on the issue, but it's been mostly uh, the first six months was mostly, I would say, learning what other people are doing from a regulatory point of view, from a supervisory point of view. Now we've, we've sort of kicked it into a higher gear and trying to forge some consensus around what the IFRS foundation is doing, what the, the global standard setters in the environmental arena are doing like SASB. But what we can do is something similar to what we did 20 years ago when the IFRS foundation was set up and IASB was established, where IOSCO came in and actually endorsed 
what was going on globally when it came to international accounting standards. And our hope is that we can be in a position to do the same thing when it comes to sustainability and sustainability standards. So working together with the IFRS Foundation, working together with the uh, impact group, with the, with the global uh, environmental standard setters, we, wanna ho we hope to be in a position that we can actually do the same thing, which will give that international imprimatur, which we think will, will be a big, big benefit when it comes to reporting and will help global companies. And the nice thing about it is what we're, the approach we're taking is it, it embeds the work of TCFD as part of this whole process. So the work of, of TCFD was groundbreaking in, in, in so many ways. And what we're trying to do is I think, take it to the- What does that acronym the, stand for? It's the, I'm sorry, the TCFD is the, uh, the task force on uh, global financial reporting. And it was under the auspices of Michael Bloomberg, but through Mark Carney when he was chairman of the Financial Stability Board. So it's, it's, it's really a challenging project, but I think one that will bear some, some fruit actually by the end of this year, at least that's, uh, that's our hope. But we're also looking at a couple of other issues like the role of credit rating agencies in the whole area, the da data providers in this whole area. What about asset managers and the role that they play? Greenwashing, investor protection. So we're, we've got work streams on each of these uh, each of these areas, and we're, we will likely publish some consultation papers uh, around guidance in these areas in, in mid-year, mid-year this year. So I would say stay tuned and look for that because uh, th th those are important pieces of work for us. Can you speak a bit more to what it means for IOSCO to actually work on climate? In addition to publishing papers, what does that mean in practice and what tangible outcomes can we expect and how they interact with regulators across the globe? Well, in a practical way, I mean, it means things like issuing guidance, for example, or encouraging emerging markets, for instance, about adopting certain recommendations if, if they use climate-related issues as a way to grow and increase uh, their markets. Just to give you a very tangible, practical example, about a year ago or thereabouts, we issued 10 recommendations that were geared towards growth in emerging markets that said, if you want to, if you have a market growth mandate as the security regulator in your country, and you wanna use green finance or climate related products to help grow your market, here are 10 recommendations about what you should do to do that. And so it, it, it's trying to be practical about what markets and what regulators can actually do when it comes to climate related issues. And so now in the asset management world, it will be about disclosure in terms of what they should be disclosing to their clients, how they guard against greenwashing and things of that nature so that it, it, it's a real tangible set of things that they could do that will help them, we think, but also help protect investors, which is a core mandate of, of IOSCO. And so we're having those discussions, I would say, internationally. And when it comes to disclosure related, I think we're far ahead of, of entities like the Financial Stability Board. I think we're ahead of organizations like the, the Basel Committee. I think we're ahead of, uh, of the uh, insurance regulators. So, I mean, we're, we're trying to be on the front foot when it comes to climate related disclosures, for example, and not always be, you know, responding to things, but trying to help set the standard. 
So Paul, let's leave a question that I've often had and wondered about with these international committees. When you say you're ahead, you have committees that are working on these issues and they're coming up with solutions. Does that necessarily mean that the members who are appointed to these committees reflect the views of where they come from? Are they working on their own? Are they trying to convince regulators back home of the changes that need to be made? Or is it the security commissions back home that are looking for leverage and using committees at IOSCO to help their governments affect change? How does all that work? Yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag, Scott, and it's actually a really uh, good and I would say somewhat complicated question because in many respects, uh, uh, those that sit around these international tables are trying to do everything that you just said. So in some, in, in some cases, it's, it's sort of a personal sort of goal. You know, they, they're high enough up in the organization that they want to see something happen on coming up with standards for leverage in the asset management industry. And they, they can really help affect that change. In other cases, it, it's organizationally, where an organization that the representative from the organization actually represents the views of that organization. And that's, I would say, happens in, in a number of cases. In other instances, it's individuals that are sitting around the table proposing ideas that they would like to then be able to leverage back home to put in place a standard in their home country that they can point to and say, look, this is the international standard. We need to do this kind of thing back in X country. And so you see a multitude of perspectives, I would say, when it comes to these international bodies. And what we try to do at IOSCO is get the IOSCO members together to come up with a, a common position among market regulators to the extent that we can. Now that's not always possible. And sometimes there's an IOSCO position that might differ slightly from one of the other IOSCO members that may sit around the same table, but that's okay. I mean, we, we, we're, we're, we may be 75% aligned and 25% divergent, but that's clear when we voice our, our views when it comes to uh, these, uh, these fora. And so it's, it's a very interesting mixed bag and you sometimes have to work out exactly where the politics are uh, in these instances to figure out why is somebody proposing this when you know, somebody else is proposing that and, and, and then you try to sort of uh, move the chess pieces the best you can within your mandate. I mean, you have to be sincere and true to your own mandate, but at the same time, you also have to play a little bit of uh, game. There's a little bit of gamesmanship that goes on as well. I hate to put it that way, but it, I think it's the truth. So Paul, we have a, a couple of current event type questions for you. They can be answered either from your own personal view or how IOSCO would deal with them in general. Okay. And let's start with GameStop. Everybody's talking about it and maybe it's going to die down in terms of public interest, but from a regulatory perspective, there are likely some things that are gonna continue and endure uh, in the coming months and, and year. And do you have any views or thoughts on GameStop? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, what that did, I mean, for, for me, and I think we will probably look at it at IOSCO in some form. I mean, I don't know for certain, but because it's so recent, is it, is it really brought into, uh, into the forefront, the, the mission of what we, what we have is market integrity and investor protection and, 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 and how these things actually crossed through social media. And so using a social media platform to encourage individual investors to, to get into the market and do what they did to try to, you know, you know, pin in, squeeze these hedge funds, 
you know, speaks to virtually everything that we're all about. And so I think there's going to be an examination of what happened there and whether there's something that we need to be looking at from a market integrity and frankly, from an investor protection point of view. And, and, I, and I, I find what happened there absolutely fascinating, actually, in terms of, of, of how, uh, how things just unfolded and, and, and sort of the, the thinking that went behind uh, what people did and how they did it. And, and we'll see. So I, I think we're going to look at it uh, in, in some more detail. So another company that was in the news some months ago, Ant Financial, what do you think of the failed IPO and its registration as a bank now? Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting one. That I'll have to probably give you my personal view because uh, institutionally, I mean, we, we don't have a, a, a view on that. But I would say personally, this is, this is geopolitics at its finest, uh, if I could sort of put it that way, where I do think there was an effort to bring Ant down to size, if I could sort of use the vernacular, and that it was getting a little bit too global, a little bit too ahead of its skis when it came to the government of, of China. And I think there was an effort to bring it back under the, uh, under the thumb of the, of the authorities in, in, uh, in Beijing. And I think that's really what is going on here. It's really a political issue as opposed to a markets issue. And it's, uh, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. That's just the reality. And I think now that it's a bank, it's definitely under more control of the, of the central government. And that will curtail, I think, some of the things that it's able to do. I don't tweet very often, but every once in a while I do. And probably they're ill-timed. But Ant was one where I couldn't resist uh, tweeting. And my initial thought was when the IPO failed, it was uh, China, the China's government uh, snatching financial market defeat out of the jaws of victory and thinking it was one of the most amazing IPOs ever to go public and they killed it. And then they've now announced, announced that Ant will register as a, a bank. At least it looks like it'll be a, a bank charter. You know, how will this unfold? Is this good news for markets? Is it bad news for the state-owned enterprise banks? Is Ant going to clean up as a regulated bank in China? Yeah, I, I don't take it as good news, uh, to be honest. I, I take it as, you know, command and control. And I'm not sure it's good globally. I'm not sure it's good necessarily even in China. Again, my personal view uh, on this, I could be completely wrong about this, but I, I see it as, as more of a power play than I see it as, as something that was done for the good of the marketplace, both domestically and internationally. And I'm, I'm not particularly hopeful to be honest with you. You're probably a little more sanguine about it than I am, but uh, we'll see. Speaking of the IPO process, SPACs, are these the new way to go public? Are they a fad? Are they enduring? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think they're, they're, they're a, I don't want to call them a fad because they're fairly, they're fairly well established in the U.S. I mean, they're growing in the U.S. They are getting a lot of attention now in Europe. And I would say that for markets that are looking at approaches to how to how to restart the engine of the markets, given you know recent events with COVID and, and still some markets are haven't fully recovered from the great financial crisis, I think these are going to get serious look seriously examined, uh, particularly in Europe. I don't know so much about whether I think the Asian markets are going to look at SPACs, maybe Hong Kong in 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 in, in some respects. But I, I'm not ready to say they're a fad, 
but I'm not sure that they're the answer to a traditional IPO. I think the IPO process can be reformed in, 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 in ways that will make it more effective and more efficient. But I think SPACs still have a, have a little uh, ways to go before they're either alive or dead. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure yet. I think they're kind of in the middle. So Paul, um, you've spent a lot of time with us and we really appreciate it. And thanks for all your insights. And before you go, I know you're wrapping up as the Secretary General of IOSCO. Can you just give us some closing thoughts on what's next for you? And are there anything, any accomplishments that you're particularly proud of and you want to highlight? Well, you know, I, I would say that um, I came to IOSCO really to do a few things. And I, I, I was conscious of, of, of what I wanted to accomplish when I, when I got there. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that I've accomplished the things that I set out to do. And, and probably the, the most important thing that I wanted to do was, was rejigger how IOSCO goes about setting its strategy and, and the way it looks at markets holistically. Previously, they used to set out a five-year plan and they would, they would uh, put, put out a plan from say 2015 to 2020. And they would call that our 2020 strategic direction. Well, to me, by the time you, you know, printed the document in 2015, it was already irrelevant. And it never made sense to me to plan five years ahead in, in capital markets because things are so dynamic and things change so frequently and you just can't predict what's going to happen a year from now, two years from now, let alone five years from now. So after working with the board and coming up with a new approach, I was able to, to, to get the board to sort of rethink that whole way of, of going about it. And now we do it on a, on a yearly basis, but it's sort of an ongoing process, I would say. And we, we reevaluate every year where we are, how markets have developed, what's sort of the, 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 the burgeoning issues that we need to be on top of today not losing sight of some of the longer term things. And so to me, that's, that's one thing that I have to say I'm perhaps most proud of that we've, we've gotten IOSCO, I think in the right place as it sets its priorities on a year to year basis now, and we're public about it and we're accountable for it. And that I think is really important. So, so where are you going now? What are you gonna do? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I was recently uh, offered a, something that I, I'm going to find, I think, really challenging. I'm going to work for uh, the Chartered Financial uh, Analyst Institute, the CFA Institute. It's a new position that's going to bring together ethics and standards, advocacy and research all in one uh, roof so that we've, we find the intersections between all of these things that uh, we hope will make the CFA Institute a little more effective and more uh, nimble, and I hope uh, a better and bigger organization. So uh, that's where I'm headed next, and that will be uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. And um, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's gonna be a big challenge to sort of pull all this together, but uh, I like challenges. IOSCO was a challenge, and I think this is the next one. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I hope we can stay in contact and uh, perhaps share some thoughts uh, in, the, in my new role as time goes by. Well, we wish you luck in your new endeavor and we appreciate your time with us today. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, please rate it so that others can find it. The production is brought to you by the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. If you'd like to learn more about the center, visit salemcenter.org. 
Our student executive producers from the Moody's College of Communication are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr. 